We just celebrated a, a widely known holiday filled with gifts and lights and smiles and tasty food, surrounded by family and honoring old traditions. On the count of three, let's say the name of that holiday together. One, two, three. No, I wasn't talking about Christmas. I'm talking about Boxing Day, the day after Christmas. And don't confuse Boxing Day with being about the sport of boxing. That is not a day where you dress your kids up like Muhammad Ali and you make them say, I'm the greatest. I fly like a butterfly and sting like a bee. We don't walk around on December the 26th telling people Mike Tyson is the reason for the season. No. Every year for Christmas, we have some people in our church and they hand out cookies to friends, neighbors, businesses, and the cookies are shaped like little Christmas trees. What would you hand out on Boxing Day? Maybe a, maybe a box with Mike Tyson's face on it. You open it up and there's cookies inside shaped like a Vander Holyfield's ear. Mmm, tasty. My, my wife was born in Canada. She celebrated Boxing Day her whole life. Recently, someone asked her, what's the history behind Boxing Day? Where did it originate? She paused for a moment and said, I'm not sure. I forgot the meaning behind the holiday. In her home, the tradition was honored, but the meaning was lost. The routine was in place, but the ritual disappeared. Asking your average person on the street what's behind Boxing Day can can be quite humorous. As one said, isn't that when you throw away all the Amazon boxes after Christmas? Or one lady, I'm not sure, but it's when I put my cat in a box and I post a picture on IG saying happy Boxing Day. Beyond that, I have no idea what it means. Oddly enough, for such a popular holiday, its origins are somewhat murky. There are four main theories, but only two that seem to stand out. Some people believe it came from wooden boxes placed in Anglican churches to collect money for the poor. However, the bulk of the evidence traces back to a practice in Victorian England in the mid-19th century. At that time, servants of landholders were required to work Christmas day and night, and they would have the following day off. As they left the manor to spend time with their own families, they would receive a gift in the form of a box, from the lords and ladies of the manor, typically chock full of tasty goods. Things like cold meats, cheeses, nuts, exotic teas, fruit like oranges, from the far-flung reaches of the empire, and, and little treats like cookies, but not our cookies, British cookies, tasteless. <laughs> L- later, this became a day of giving to those less fortunate than themselves. Boxing Day is still celebrated across the pond in the United Kingdom and in other British Commonwealth countries such as Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. How do these countries celebrate Boxing Day now? Well, there's a variety of ways. Some generously tip their hairdressers, hair house cleaners, employers, garbage men. Some deliver dinners to shut-ins or visit nursing homes with smiles and hugs. Others donate clothing and toys to those in need. For some families, they go fox hunting or watch horse racing. Watching football, our American soccer is popular as well. Maybe a game between Chelsea and Manchester United. Sadly, for the most part, it's become the largest shopping day of the year. 
rivaling Black Friday in the States. It's become extremely secular with some simply celebrating the holiday by becoming wasted. Holidays are a motif with rich overtones in the Bible. In fact, today's text focuses on the instruction, the institution, and celebration of a holiday. I want to unpack what's happened so far before we get to the text. Haman the wicked, Haman the Hitler, played his Ouija board, and the gods said December the 13th is the day that all the Jews need to die. So he sent out a decree. Esther, she outed him, and it turns out that snitches don't always get stitches. So um, she got safety. The king hangs Haman and promotes Mordecai second in command. Mordecai writes a new edict allowing the Jews to defend themselves on December the 13th. And on that day, the Jews, they throw down, killing 75,000 people. Stephen Davey says, Upon reading this, you might think, as I initially did, that 75,000 Persians is a lot of people. But documents from this time period reveal that the population of Persia was somewhere around 50 million people. Which means that the number of people who actually took up arms against the Jews was relatively small. Apparently, God had been swinging hearts even before the Jews began swinging swords. The Jews survived. But how? And why? The Jews in Persia were delivered because of an ancient covenant. God's promise to preserve the Jews in Genesis 17 prevailed. And as it turns out, those Jews living beyond the borders of the promised land are not beyond the reach of God's protection. God needed that Jewish line to bring the Messiah into the world. It was obvious that God would go to bat for his people. It was obvious that God will shed blood for his people. Once when Martin Luther was asked what argument he could use to prove the Bible true, he answered, the Jews. The Persians realized this. Many of them became Jews because of this event. It's really funny. At the beginning of the book, Jews are pretending to be Persians. Now Persians are becoming Jews. Last Sunday, one of the ladies in our church who's in this service said something profound. She said it to me in passing. She said, isn't it interesting that every time someone tries to wipe out the Jews, they get a holiday out of it. And in fact, that's exactly what we have in our text. A holiday celebrating God's deliverance of the Jews. And you may not be aware, but... When I spoke about Boxing Day earlier, I answered who, what, when, where, how, and why. I'm going to do the same with this holiday, but I'll change the order a bit. You'll see it as it unfolds. First question, when did God's people celebrate this holiday? Notice verse 17. This, that's the killing of the Persians, this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that day of feasting, and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and the 14th, and they rested on the 15th day, making that day of feasting and gladness. Now, you may be asking, did they celebrate the holiday on the 14th or the 15th? The answer is both. The next verse is a parenthetical explanation for it. Jews around the world celebrate this holiday on one day, the 14th of Adar, except those living in one of the cities traditionally considered walled at the time of Joshua, which include Jerusalem, Hebron, and, and Jericho, where they celebrated on the 15th of Adar. And, and you may remember me saying over and over that the attack would take place December the 13th. 
I wanted to repeat that so you would know it took place on the 13th day of the 12th month. However, in reality, the Jewish calendar doesn't line up with ours. Notice on the image behind me that our months are in the center and the Jewish months are on the outside. The 12th month of Adar lines up with portions of our February and March. And this particular holiday usually falls somewhere between, it's different each year, February the 25th to March the 25th. Now to the second question. How did God's people celebrate this holiday? Notice verse 19. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns, that's not walled, hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting. As a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Literally, this holiday involved exchanging of presents. And their gifts were boxes of food. Seasonings, fruits and nuts, vegetables, oil, grain, fish, fowl, lamb, goat, oxen, but no pork. No pork chops, no pork belly, no pork loin, no bacon, no sausage. It's a pretty weak basket. But these Jews are obeying the dietary laws. And then in verse 20, it mentions that they give gifts to the poor as well. Now, this is one of the most festive and joyous holidays on the Jewish calendar, but they wanted their times of feasting to be accompanied by times of caring for the less fortunate, for looking out for the lonely, for welcoming outcasts and strangers into their families. Now, that's how Jews then celebrated. How did Jews today, modern Jews, celebrate this holiday? Well, it's developed into much more. You can ask your Jewish friends about this, but it's become quite wild. For some of the kids, they get dressed up in costumes. And it depends on the view of the synagogue as to what costumes are encouraged. Conservative congregations will usually limit the costumes to characters in the story. Esther, Mordecai, Xerxes, Haman. Others allow any costume and people will dress up and wear masks of modern-day anti-Semitic people who would like to exterminate the Jewish people, such as Yasir Arafat, Osama bin Laden, or Saddam Hussein. Others are more playful and they turn the holiday into a Jewish Halloween, but without the occultic overtones. You may see kids dressed up as Spider-Man, Star Wars characters, Raphael, not the painter, but the turtle, Princesses. You even see some really little evil kids dressed up as the Patriots' Tom Brady. There's no telling what you'll see. Then the kids, once they're dressed up, they go to the synagogue or the temple for the reading of the Magella, the scroll of Esther. And they read the entire book. It took us eight weeks to exposit the book. How long would it take to read the book all the way through? And you may be asking, how did they get those kids to stay calm during this time? Especially when they don't have Pastor Kyle continually reminding them of the soundproof room in the, in the back. Well, they, did, they wanted their kids to be loud. In fact, every child has a little rattle to drown out the name of Wicked Haman when it's read. I read after one man this week who said that his first year studying in Israel, he had a biblical Hebrew class. I'll let him pick up the story. In the spring semester, we were translating the book of Esther. One of our class assignments was to visit a synagogue for the reading of Esther during this holiday. What an experience that was. When the cantor came to the name Mordecai, the protagonist in the story, the people shouted, Blessed be Mordecai! 
When the name Haman, the antagonist, was read, everybody stomped their feet on the floor, made noise with their noisemakers called groggers, and shouted, Cursed be Haman! Blessed be Mordecai! Cursed be Haman! And that's quite a service. I think we should try it. The next time Dan Herbster preaches, we're going to implement it. Now, we have quite a few people in our church who study the original languages, Greek and Hebrew. Don't let that intimidate you. Um, <clears throat> I was talking to a couple this week, and I said, how are you enjoying the group, their particular small group? And they said, we love it. We may be the only people in it who don't know Greek and Hebrew, but, but we love it. We're learning a lot. We actually have a family here that they go and study Hebrew with some local Jews. And I asked them to write to me about Purim. So two weeks ago, they did. One statement really caught my attention. They said, Haman, crossed out the word Haman. Haman was dead by the time this holiday was established. Yet he remains the point of blame in the Esther story. Something that is not the case for Pharaoh nor any other character in Jewish history. This could be that the people could not identify the actual spiritual villain any more than they could identify the spiritual savior. What was this celebration like for adults? Of all the Jewish festivals, this is the most secular in flavor. If it was like Halloween to the kids, it's... It's like New Year's Eve to some adults. People drink too much, they wear too little, and it's not holy. It looks more like the parties that Xerxes threw in the beginning of the book instead of the holiday that we find at the end of the book. One rabbi said that a man should mellow himself with wine until he cannot tell the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. In other words, this was the only day they were permitted to get drunk. And many Jews still miss the purpose of this holiday. They overlook the spiritual aspect. The tradition is honored, but the meaning is lost. The routine is in place, but the ritual disappeared. One man in our church said, with some Jews, this holiday fits well with the concept that God saved his people. Now let's get together and eat. Apparently something that did not originate with the Baptist. <laughs> do we not do the same thing? Fourth of July. It's not really about our liberation as a nation. It's about cornhole, fireworks, and hot dogs, Nathan's beef franks versus Oscar Mayer wieners. The franks always win. Now, for conservative Jews, those that still honor the holiday and try to in the most conservative way, you may find other festivities including exchanging presents, giving food boxes to the poor, and performing plays. Of the traditional foods on this holiday, there is a particular dessert that caught my attention. It's a triangular cookie. You ask most participants what the dessert signifies, they would quickly answer that it's in the shape of a triangle, a triangle for the triangular hat supposedly worn by Haman. And they call the cookies Haman's hat. But there's more history than that to the cookie. And the clue can be found in the name. Early versions of the cookies were commonly known as Osnei Haman, meaning Haman's ears. Literally, they celebrated this holiday with boxes, and you open them up, and there's cookies shaped like Haman's ears. I mean, think, if, if Mike Tyson had a Jewish friend to give him this box <laughs> on Boxing Day, we would have avoided all of that. We have a baker in the church. I thought about asking her to bake some cookies that look like ears and give them to you on your way out, but 
Apparently, yeah, exactly. Apparently, we don't have a line item for that. Okay, question number three. Who instituted this holiday? And should we observe it? Notice verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in the province of King Xerxes, both near and far, obliging them to keep it. Let's stop here. Mordecai institutes it. Later in the chapter, Esther puts her stamp of approval on it as well. Notice verse 23. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. So this feast is not from God. It's from Mordecai. God does not directly command this holiday. It's a minor feast, not a major one. God ordained Passover. That's a major feast. So does that make celebrating this holiday wrong? Does the writer want his hearers to abandon the festival as being an unauthorized feast? Well, I don't think so. God's not opposed to it. He, he didn't rebuke it. It simply originated as a spontaneous response from God's people to his omnipotent faithfulness to his own promises. It's an explosion of praise. Should Christians who aren't Jews, i.e. like 99% of us in this room, should Christians who aren't Jews celebrate this holiday? Well, it's an interesting question. In the text, Jews are celebrating it, and so are non-Jews. Should we? Well, it's not a sin to. If you want to, you're welcome to. But if you do, just remember that you should center it on Jesus. Make it all about Christ. If you look at all the feasts and festivals and holidays and holy days of the Old Testament, first of all, they're, they're all fulfilled in Christ. So as long as you celebrate Jesus, you're meeting all the obligations of all the holidays. But if you choose to do it as a teaching tool for your family, I don't see harm in it. Now, if you, if you want to become a messianic Jew, I have some real theological issues with that. Now, let me make a, let me make a side, 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 side note. This is way out in left field. All right? I'm like a squirrel. I'm going there right now. Um, Westminster Confession of Faith cites the establishment of this holiday in Esther as the support in asserting that the church may at times call for special occasions of thanksgiving outside of the weekly Lord's Day worship. For instance, some churches hold services in conjunction with national holidays like Thanksgiving Day or Christmas Eve. Some churches do it when they pay off the mortgage on a church building. When we pay off the mortgage on this church building, I am throwing a block party. Hot dogs, dunking booze, people parachuting from planes. And we're going to do it big and I'm going to go to bed that night sleeping really well. Now, there are, there are many times when a special worship service of Thanksgiving can be appropriate. Question number four. What did the Jews name this holiday? And it's been really difficult for me not to give this to you before we arrived at it, but notice verse 24. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast per, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. Notice verse 26. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term pur. So P-U-R, pur, is singular. Purim is plural. Purim is an Akkadian loan word for dice or lots. Back in chapter 3, I asked you to hold on to the word dice, the word lot, the word pure, all the same word, because we're going to pick it up at the end of the book. Well, now we are, we're picking it up. Wicked Haman was very superstitious. And believing in astrology, he bade his magicians to cast lots that he might find the lucky day to slaughter the Jews. So the voodoo doctors cast lots. They cast dice. They cast Purim. 
These stones were usually made from baked clay shaped like modern dice. They cast them into the lap of the false gods. This is witchcraft. This is sorcery. This is like consulting a medium. It's going to some spiritual leader that's not a Christian trying to hear the spirit. Well, the Jews picked up on the dice and they named a holiday after it. Purim. When the devil rolls the dice, God decides what number comes up. He wins and he makes his people burst into spontaneous praise. Gives them a holiday. Question number five. Why did the Jews honor this holiday? Notice verse 27. The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. In other words, this memory must never die. They obligated their children and grandchildren to keep this going. Now, why would they do that? So they will never forget what God did on their behalf. A reminder that God turned their mourning into dancing. The Jews were known to commemorate days that brought relief. Esther and Mordecai we're not about to let the narrow escape of Jewish people go unnoticed by future generations. They said, you pass it on from generation to generation. It's tradition. You keep it going. Did it work? Yes. What they established nearly 500 years before the birth of Christ is still being observed by Jewish people to this day. More importantly than that, we celebrate Jesus to whom this holiday points... And we exposit the book, so we're keeping it as well by celebrating Christ. One of my boys was the recipient of a tradition two weeks ago. He, uh, he shot a squirrel with a 22. And then the guy who took him put the squirrel's blood on his face. And my, my son came home. Sarah heard him talking to one of our other sons, and he said, When you kill your first animal, I'm going to put the blood on your face. <laughs> It's tradition. <laughs> Look, they were to be that serious about tradition. Esther chapter 10 verse 1. King Xerxes imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. So how's the king celebrating? Um, government's doing what they do best. Tax people. Verse 2. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written? And notice this. In the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. Now some of you may be going to your Bible and you're like, I'm looking in the table of contents. I'm looking, I don't see the book of the kings of Media and Persia. I can't find it here. It's because it's not in your Bible. Sometimes the Bible will mention books that aren't in the Bible. They're, the books they mention are not divinely inspired. They're just referencing historical books. Now how shall we end the book of Esther? You say quickly. I say with three applications, okay? <laughs> Application number one. Set up memorials for times when God delivered you. Set up memorials for times when God delivered you. During World War II, the Nazis hated any mention of the book of Esther. 
In fact, one historian recorded this little side note that if a Jew arrived at one of the concentration camps in possession of the book of Esther, that Jew was immediately put to death. The Nazis wanted no message of hope and deliverance inside the death camps. Hitler and Satan want you to forget the days of God's deliverance. And because of this, I think you should build a monument. Make a memorial to the providence of God in your deliverance. Our country is dotted with memorials and calendar events dedicated to moments long past. Some are sacrifices of our veterans. Some are efforts of past presidents, Lincoln, Washington, Jefferson. These special days and beautiful monuments give our, our past significance. And because of that, they provide a better perspective on the present. And I think you should build a monument. I think this is why you should practice journaling. It's not a biblical command, but I think it's a good habit to practice journaling. To record God's grace in your life, write it down and celebrate it. This is why you need to regularly sit down with God's people and rehearse to them how God has delivered you in the past. And you say, Kyle, I would if, you know, if I had miraculous events that happened to Esther happen to me. There are no signs or wonders or special revelations. There's no prophet like Moses. No one who mentions... It's not even a mention of God in the book. There are, there are miracles there, yeah. But not the ones you're picturing. See, God can work through wonders through a boat in a flood, or God can work through wonders without miracles. So you need, to, you need to somehow get into the practice of recording your miracleless providences. The story is told of Hitler given one of his fiery speeches in a large hall in Munich early in his rise to power. In this oration, he called for the destruction of the Jewish people. In the front row sat a man who, on occasion, would make faces and laugh at the Fuhrer. After the meeting, Hitler inquired as to who this man was and why he made faces and laughed at him. He wanted a meeting, and he wanted it now. The man explained that he was Jewish, and he said to Hitler, You should be aware that you're not the first anti Semitic person who sought to destroy us. You may recall that the great Pharaoh of Egypt sought to enslave the Jews. And to commemorate his defeat and our redemption, we eat a tasty mazot and observe the festival of Passover. Haman was another enemy of ours who brought about his own downfall. The delicious Haman's ears we eat and the jo jolly festival of Purim recall our deliverance from him. While listening to your venomous diatribe, I wondered what kind of delicacy would the Jews invent and what kind of holiday would be established to celebrate your downfall. Mm, I like this man. I don't know him, but I like him. You need to speak like that. Martin Luther, the reformer, said, The best way to drive out the devil, if he will not yield to texts of scripture, is to jeer and flaunt him, for he cannot bear scorn. Satan, God delivered me when I was 16, lost in your putrefied sin. Satan, God delivered me when you sent me spiraling into depression. Satan, I can't wait to see how God will deliver me from your current attacks. I scorn you. I laugh at you. My God will turn your attacks into a holiday. You can face threatening circumstances with hope only because of the new covenant in Christ. God is relentlessly committed to caring for his people. Application number two. Salvation requires you to celebrate. 
Salvation requires you to celebrate. After the Egyptians and their chariots were buried in the Red Sea, you'll remember that Moses led them in a song of celebration. Like there's dead bodies everywhere. It's just a little weird. He's leading them in a song of celebration. And Esther, dead bodies everywhere, leading them in a celebration. After the Lord delivered his people under Deborah, Judges chapter 5, she led them in a celebration. There should constantly be a note of celebration and joy in our worship. Do you remember the death from which you have been spared? Do you remember the wrath from which you have been saved? A somber tone may be appropriate for a funeral, but not a feast day. How do you live out Purim? How do you become Purim people? You celebrate every day the great deliverance that Jesus Christ purchased for you on the cross. We, we are part of a great line of God's people, whether it's in Babylon or Persia or in Egypt or it's in Nineveh. Wherever God should bring salvation, we are part of that family history. And their salvation is our salvation and their celebration is our celebration. And we need to redeem celebrations, redeem holidays. We had a family leave our church, I don't know, a few months ago just because of a job transfer. She called Sarah um, a couple months later and said that her little daughter was talking about celebrating what Jesus has done in the family. And that little six-year-old said, and I quote, You remember what Pastor Kyle said, Mom? Ain't no party like a Jesus party because a Jesus party don't stop. <laughs> of all the things I said in front of that precious child, <laughs> that's the only thing she remembers. And friends, we don't have a day to celebrate, or even two. We have every day. And it should lead us to a little excitement. Now, sometimes people celebrate apart from God. They eat too much, they wear too little, they drink too much, they stay too long. Not, we celebrate glory. We celebrate forgiveness of sins. We celebrate grace and mercy. We celebrate sanctification. And most Christians are better at mourning than celebrating. Especially our type of church. That places an emphasis on expository preaching and, and depth. But we're going to work to change that narrative. Because we know the depth of our depravity. And it leads us to loud celebration. Application number three. It's the final one. It's time to celebrate by going to the table. Jesus instituted the Lord's table. There is no more Passover for God's people. We now have the Lord's table. And he commanded his people not to forget it. You are commanded by Jesus to partake of this table. And we want to avoid honoring the tradition but losing the meaning. This isn't routine. This is ritual. We do not want to treat this celebration like most people treat Boxing Day. Or many Jews today treat Purim. We don't want to forget the meaning behind what we do. So how should we approach these tables? First, we need to know what the bread and juice are. Catholics call this an altar. We call it a table. When we take that little piece of bread, they are not the ears of our enemy, but it represents the body of our Savior. The belief that the bread and the juice transform into the literal body and blood of Christ is called transubstantiation. That you are, the, the, blood, the, the juice transforms into the blood. You're literally drinking the blood of Christ and then, and then 
getting pretty nasty, isn't it? The bread, you're literally eating the body of Christ. It's called transubstantiation. The reformer strongly disbelieved and said it was a medieval invention to which I agree. Because we are not carnivorous beasts. We're not blood guzzlers. We're not cannibals. We recognize it's figurative language. If I drew you a picture and said, this is my house and, and then this is my garage, you know that's not my house. You know that's a picture of my house. That is a picture of my garage. When Jesus said, this is my blood, no one at the table believed it was actually blood in the cup. It was a picture. Alistair Begg said, any schoolboy should recognize this. So we should come to the table knowing what the bread and juice are. Secondly, we need to follow our theological convictions. I personally connect the Lord's table to the global body, not the local one. So I, I do not personally connect it to baptism by immersion. It's just hard for me to tell Tim Keller and R.C. Sproul and Kevin DeYoung, you know what, you need to stay in your seat, you can't come to the table. But you may differ than me and you may be right, but follow your theological convictions. Thirdly, we need to remember how to approach the table. It's a table of grace, not merit. We're here because of his blood, not ours. You're resting on his perfect performance, not yours. We need to take the table in communion, in community. It's interesting, on the night in which Jesus instituted this meal, he took his disciples away from their families. See, Passover was still observed that night, but the oldest boy in the home evidently did it because Jesus, Jesus took his followers away from their family to eat the table. Why? There's a new family. It's the family of God, and it's thicker than blood. We need to see what this meal is pointing to. The Lord's Supper is a look into the future. This is just an appetizer. It's a dress rehearsal for a wedding feast in heaven. And we need to celebrate this meal. Jesus commanded, do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say, do this in remorse of me. This is a celebration. This is not a funeral. Quite the opposite. He's alive. And, how, and when you approach this table, you need to approach it with a wholesome distrust of yourself. The foundational people of Christianity, the disciples, went from communion to denial. And I think there's a warning and an encouragement there. A warning. Do not be like them. Don't partake of this table today and live like you don't know Christ tomorrow. But I also find an incredible encouragement here. It's not about your commitment to Christ. It's about his commitment to you. If you, and some of you, if you're, if you're not a follower of this Christ, I'm going to ask that you do not take the bread and cup, but take Christ instead. Receive him into your heart as those around you receive the food and come and tell us about it so we can have you ready to receive the Lord's table the next time as a child of God. Mom and dad, it's good for your children to watch you come to the table without them. They must realize that they cannot live on your faith. God has children but he has no grandchildren. This is an amazing gospel opportunity for you when a child says, why can't I get a piece of bread and a cup of juice? This guy preached forever. I am thirsty. <laughs> the correct answer is not, you know, because you're not old enough or you're not a member of the church. You don't know all the catechisms. No. Use that opportunity to unpack the gospel and call their little precious sinful hearts to repentance.
Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.